If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is a Geek Leader Podcast, and I'm your host, John Rauta. This show is all about helping us grow as leaders, become better technologists, and improve our lives both at work and at home. I hope you enjoy the show and learn a lot. Hello, world, and welcome to episode 208 of a Geek Leader Podcast. I'm your host, John Rauta, and today's sponsor is Private Internet Access. If you've ever surfed the web and wanted to do it securely, especially when you're traveling or using someone else's uh, network, you definitely need private internet access. Private internet access allows you to have a secure VPN without them logging what data you're, what you're doing, what transactions you're making, or anything like that to connect to anywhere in the world. You can also change your default location so it appears as if you're coming from a different place. Why is this helpful, you say? If you're not doing anything nefarious, well, it's really helpful if you want to test DNS resolution from different places and different time zones. Um, It's a really cool tool, and it's not very expensive at all. You can get plans starting at $3.99 a month, and you can find out more by going to ageekleader.com slash VPN. Again, that's ageekleader.com slash VPN. All right, Geek Leaders. Today on the show, I've got Ruben Ugarte, and he is an expert in data decision-making and the author of a new book that I've got in front of me called The Data Mirage, While Companies Fail to Actually Use Their Data. Uh, And he's helped um, medium and large enterprises, including Fortune 1000 companies all across the world, um, use their data more effectively. So we're going to talk a lot about data and uh, and also just about Ruben and and yourself and and where your journey has taken you and how you've been there. So uh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, John. If you don't mind, just tell the audience a little bit about how you got to where you are today and kind of what you do today, just to lay some context for the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, I, for me, it really starts when I was a teenager and I was fascinated by the internet. It was this place where you could like create a store and make money. And to me, it just seemed amazing. So I taught myself how to code and build websites when I was in high school Mm -hmm. and I, I would spend my nights building websites, kind of like a very typical, you know, techie person story. (laughs) Then I moved into doing it as a freelancing uh, career or or type of projects. And about six years ago, maybe seven years ago, I wanted to move away from the coding. I I realized I'm not the type of person who can just code all day long. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something that was more on the business side, maybe more in marketing, sales. And I realized that this analytics which I was doing a little bit of, was really a hybrid of both. It was highly technical in the way data gets collected and stored and so on, but it was mostly used by non-technical people. And I thought that was a great mix. So I I moved into that field. I started doing consulting. And of course, today I do all kinds of uh, approaches, whether it's coaching, facilitation, and of course, even more than just data. But that, that was really the path that got me into data, which is now decision-making and a few other uh, expertise. Yeah, so, uh, and you're the founder of, uh, what is it, Practico Analytics? And what, what do you guys do? So, well, you know, I gotta make it clear, when you say we, it's just myself. Don't wanna, <laughs> don't, don't wanna make, Still oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a solo. I'm a solo consultant. I'm a solo expert, and I help companies uh, of all sizes, from startups to Fortune five uh, hundred, and help them get more value out of the data and use it to make better decisions. So that might mean we're collecting new data and storing it. It might mean that we have to train people on how to understand data and how to interpret it. Mm -hmm. It might mean we're building reports and dashboards. Uh, so there's a, a few different ways of approaching it. Uh, but the, the clients range from software, you know, software industry to non-software. So it's really quite varied and quite interesting. Awesome. Awesome. And um, so you fell in love kind of with the idea of data and how to use data in, in a good way for businesses. And how have you seen companies, because, um, you know, as a software developer um, by, by trade back in, back in the day, and now I haven't written a whole lot of code lately, but, you know, we were kind of tasked by marketing folks and, and other and data teams to capture as much data as you can and store as much data as you can and create these data lakes and things like that. Um, but what do we do with it? You know, and, and I've been in companies before where we've, we've captured all this data. We didn't know what to do with it. What have you seen that companies do with their data uh, that they do right? And what, they do, what do they do wrong? Yeah, you know, in, in, in some companies, I'm typically the person that is the, the bridge between the marketing people telling you to store this data and the technical people. Uh, because as you can imagine, there's pushback. You know, why are you collecting all this data? What's the point of it? We have a million things to do on the tech side, on the development side. How is this even a priority? And I guess you also get it from the security side of why are you storing this data and privacy? Yes, side. exactly. Yes, yes, yeah. But especially you know in um, let's say finance industry or crypto industry, legal and compliance has a huge role. I was in a project once where the legal team just veto everything we wanted to do. The, mm. the, the project effectively failed because we we couldn't get through legal, and you know it's a it's a hard hurdle to get over. But a couple of things that companies do right and wrong. So right is companies who are able to understand how the data actually aligns with their strategy. It's not just a, we'll collect this and then maybe one day, we'll, you know, we'll stumble upon it and we'll discover something, you know, like almost like it's gonna grow, uh, you know, organic life if you just leave it on its own. You know, data doesn't really work like that. So they, they know and they say, hey, you know, as a company, we wanna be positioned in this way. We think uh, AI is gonna be a, a, different, a differentiator for us. We think it's worth investing, and here's how we're going to use it. They also make data easily accessible to everyone. You know, since you're on the engineering side, you know that the, the technical details are complex. But for an end user, all they want to do really is to get, a, get an answer. So how can you make it really easy for that user to get the answer, to build a chart, to build a report, to export the data so they can take it to Excel, perhaps, if they're more comfortable there. And the, you know, the, the third thing, I think the companies do well is they are training people on how to interpret the numbers. Uh, and this, this is really the realm of basic statistics, basic probabilities. Uh, you know, we, we've been in this COVID-19 pandemic now for a year and a half, whatever it's been. And this, you know, it's, it's crazy to see that it, numbers aren't just numbers, right? It's not just facts. It, it, numbers get interpreted. They go through biases, they go through preferences, and this happens in companies as well. So you may see teams that look at numbers and say, that was clearly a good campaign. We, we got what we wanted, and someone's looking at, well, it's not quite good. Like, where's, where's the gap? So those kind of things can be, can be trained within companies. So you are looking at the same numbers and coming, with the, coming up with the same conclusions. So how, how do you, um, 
if you're going to consult a company and let's say they come up and say, we have all this data on all of our customers. We know, you know, when they go to our website, we know what clicks they make. We know, you know, we purchased some demographic data that we've married onto it. Um, and we don't know what to do with it. What kind of strategies would you, would you try to, or what, what are your first steps of developing a strategy to use that data to, to make the company more profitable or more successful? Well, the first step is not really even a data step. It's, it's a step, a business step. I just want to understand where the company is going. Uh, what, what do they want? What is success here? So in here, I would hear things like, well, you know, we are, we are launching a new product and we're not sure uh, how successful it will be. And it'll be great if we could measure that or know ahead of time so we can make adjustments as needed. Or they might say, you know, we're going into a new market and we don't know the, you know, the, the proper way of, of entering the market and what kind of data we might need around that. Uh, how our marketing campaign should be developed and tested. Uh, so those are the kind of things that I'm trying to get at, less so the, the technical portion, because the mm -hmm. technical portion is endless. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things we could do to store data, to collect it, to transform it, to clean it. Uh, it, it truly is a full-time job for many people. But if we know the outcome, if we know the end goal, the business end goal, then it's much easier. I can say, okay, you know, that click data you just told me about, it's completely relevant or maybe it's completely irrelevant. Let's forget about it. Let's focus on this segment. Let's focus on that. We clearly need a report that does this and gives you this kind of basic answers. And this person needs to be trained on how to interpret that report. That's, that's, that's how the, you know, the strategy starts to come into place. Um, and then from there, you know, there is technical details to be figured out. Maybe we need a BI tool to build a dashboard or we need to collect some data that we don't have but it's all a means to an end. And the, the end is that business outcome. Yeah, I've been away from uh, data for a while. So what are some of the popular BI tools that companies are using these days? And if I wanted to get deeper into um, understanding data and analytics, what tools should I be looking at or trying to learn? Oh, well, you know, tool spaces, <laughs> it's, it's huge. But I, I would say that there's two philosophically different approaches to BI tools mm -hmm. uh, that companies can think about. The old style was, built on the assumption that all your data has been centralized and it's in a data warehouse, a data lake, it's all there. All you have to do is connect a BI tool, a Tableau, a Power BI or something, and then you can start to build dashboards off it. So in that world, it's still the, the existing players you might expect, Tableau, Power BI, Domo, of course, uh, somewhat fits into this world. Almost any BI tool can really fit in this world if your data is centralized. The second approach though, philosophically different, doesn't assume that you centralize the data. It actually assumes that all your data is living in different systems. So you need to pull data from Facebook ads and Google ads and social media, and you need to pull data from your CRM at Salesforce, and you need to pull data from your email marketing tool, something like MailChimp, and it's not centralized. You need to pull it, and then the, the BI tool itself needs to combine it and then give you metrics of the, the multiple data sources combined. And this is really the realm of uh, Domo actually became quite popular for this, you know, in their connectors. This is the realm of Databox, uh, Clipfolio, Metrics, mm -hmm. um, Grow.com, I think is another one that, that does this, that, you know, they, basically this, this becomes a, a question of how many connectors do you have and do the connectors match with your company? So two different approaches, neither is right or wrong. As you, you can imagine the second approach is maybe easier to get started, mm -hmm. right? If you just literally, you know, plug and play your different tools, data sources, and you can start building dashboards. 
the first approach, of course, the, uh, works much better if you have a lot of data, you're, you're collecting a lot of things, uh, maybe performance might be faster as well. Yeah, so um, I guess with the second approach, it's gonna be using APIs and connectors to cloud-based services and other tools that you may have that store their own, own pieces of data. And then it, the, the, that approach is gonna say like, well, we know, you know we have uh, purchase history in our, um, you know, our, our sales, Salesforce system. And the, but we also have demographic data that we can pull out of Facebook if we can marry these two customers together as one customer and it'll merge that together and kind of give you your demographics of who, who is your customer or your avatar of what, what your customer is that you're looking for. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you know, now when you look at the stacks of a lot of companies, it, it's pretty standard, not all the time, but you know, a lot of companies are using Salesforce and mm -hmm. uh, Soho and Google analytics. And of course, Facebook ads and Google ads. So you can get quite, quite a bit of data just through this API connector approach without ever having to centralize it. So um, is there any concern with, you know, uh, privacy when it comes to all this data that we need to be aware of? Because I know, like, there was this approach probably 10 years ago with collect and store all the data you can about everybody and just store it because it's important. We need to keep it for forever. And then there was, you know, then breaches started happening more and more frequently. And it became like uh, and then GDPR and you had uh, the California Privacy Act in, in, in California and other things that kind of came about that, that said, hey, we need to slow down maybe some of this data collection. And um, there's been kind of a, a push with, in, in the privacy sector saying maybe we shouldn't keep as much data. Um, wh where do you see this taking the industry and why is it why is interpretation now extremely important because of this? Yeah, you know, and I think this really ramped up in 2016 based on multiple factors. Uh, like in the U.S. presidential election and sort of the mm -hmm. role that Facebook seemed to play in that was one of them. Yeah. But GDPR came out around the time, which then laid the foundation for you know the the California equivalent and so on. I think what we see now is privacy has to be built in into any kind of data strategy or plan. And now the projects I I deal with with the clients, you know, we are talking about how do we anon uh, anonymize the data? How do we remove PII, any kind of personal information like names and emails? Do, re do we really need it or should we remove it? Uh, should we keep IP addresses? Do we need that? So there is a, a bigger question around anything that could be sensitive mm -hmm. and whether we need to store it or not. And it might mean that we have limited analysis or, or, or limited options at some point, but it also saves the possibility of hassle. Um, the second thing, that we're also seeing now is there is a bigger focus on how how easy it could be to delete data. So if you go back to that BI tool approach, you know the the first approach of centralizing the data also means it's easier to delete it because it's all in one place. Right. If you have ten different tools with similar data and they all have PII, <coughs> PII, right? They all have names and emails. That that's a bit of a hassle to go through every single system and delete it. And we'll probably see solutions that deal with this. Um, and the third thing is, of course, the uh, just a, a general move towards dealing with some of the restrictions. So now it's much more common for companies to say, you know, we're going to track this on the back end instead of tracking on the client side because there's ad blockers. Or we're going to track this in our own way so we don't have to rely on cookies. Uh, so privacy is for sure changing everything on how companies track data and store it. And it's just making them be more conscious or proactive about what they actually need and don't need, which I think is it's actually it's actually good 
the approach you mentioned of 10 years ago, it was just wait and see. But the C never came. <laughs> it was just mostly waiting. And, you know, you never really got around to analyzing the data. It was just sort of pointless. Uh, now you're, by being more proactive, you're, you're, I think companies are more aware as to what actually matters to them and what they should ignore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, um, I think you're right. Consumers are becoming more aware, um, you know, with, with all the data that, you know, Facebook has about you and, and, and tracks about you. And, and, and now we have some companies like Apple that are starting to um, also kind of push back on, on the privacy sector um, by, I guess, their latest update, 14.5 on iOS ha- has users um, having to opt in in order to share data, whereas before you opted out. Yes, exactly. You know, the iOS uh, 14.5 update, as, as, as it's uh, referred to, is, is huge. And everything to do with mobile attribution is changing now. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because attribution on the marketing side, knowing where customers came from or in the mobile side, knowing where installs came from, it was never 100%. Attribution has always been this sort of art and science, more art than science, perhaps. And everyone... I, so many of my clients always got stuck in this, you know, why can we have 100% attribution and know where every single customer comes from? And now iOS, of course, makes this even harder, where you only have maybe 30%, 40% of data. But it's fine. You can still build models. You can still understand <clears throat> how your spending works, have some idea where customers are coming from. Um, it was just, a, it was just a, a, a forced change of expectations for companies. You know, I think they were, they were getting stuck on things that weren't really that important. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that was where where you realize people are capturing data that's not important, right? You know, a lot of those demographics aren't going to make a difference when it comes to purchasing um, data. And is IP really that important, especially if you have dynamic IPs where they're changing frequently or if they're coming from a mobile network? Uh, you know, maybe you just put indicators to determine where they're coming from necessarily, rather than keeping the, the full IP address. Um, um, so yeah, there's ways around it, right? So what you what we're getting at. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the um, something I always tell companies is uh, how many insights are you actually uncovering or talking about on a you know, weekly basis, monthly basis? Mm-hmm. The technology can be all encompassing because it's, it can be very complex. There's all this movement pieces. It's rapidly changing based on the world outside. So I understand why, why technology trips up companies. But at the end of the day, you're really trying to find those insights. And if you do that with a small amount of data or a large amount of data, uh, that doesn't really matter as much as long as you're getting those insights about your customers. Now, there is exceptions to this, the data science world, machine learning, AI, those all require large amounts of data in the right structure and the right format. But I think we're what we're talking about here is primarily the day-to-day reporting that companies are doing for management teams, uh, for executives, and for different leaders around the company. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I was excluding AI from that because you know, right? With machine learning, you need you know tons and tons of data sets uh, in order for um, uh, the algorithms to begin to do their thing. You know, um, so what are some of the things that you've seen um, that companies are doing wrong? You know, that, that is the the big red flag of why companies aren't succeeding when they have the correct data. Maybe they have all the tools, they have all the bells and whistles but they just don't have maybe the knowledge and experience. So what are they doing incorrectly? First, I think it's, it's uh, the, the wrong expectations. So some companies expect that all their employees are going to be data-driven, data-informed. That is just give them a dashboard and they'll deal with it. 
not everyone actually wants that. Some people just want the, the summaries. Some people want, just want to be told, these are the insights. This is what happened last week, last month. This is where you should know. So you want to you gauge that. And you, you may have some people who love data and they want to be in it and they, they know Excel inside and out. And you have people who don't. Uh, so you may have a data analyst or someone who supports them. Uh, but you just want to get the data or you want to get the insights actually more specifically into people. And I think it's your job within a company to figure out what is the best way with the least amount of friction to do this. You know, I work with a client where they held this data, but they weren't using it. And we created an email digest, very simple idea that just summarized the, the most important KPIs. And all of a sudden their management team was all talking about this data because it, it arrived in their inbox every Monday and it gave them a highlight of the sort of top five things they should know that week or from the previous week. And that was just a very easy way. It's, it's not complex. This is not, you know, AI is not, it's not data science. It was just a way of getting the insights into the hands of people as quickly as possible and without expecting them to work really hard for it. Um, so companies that don't do this, I think, really make it hard for data to actually be uh, ingested into, into the company culture. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think putting that digest and emailing it out or getting it right in front of them in a way that uh, either through Slack or something like that makes perfect sense versus having to, you know, I've been at companies where you built this great data warehouse and you have all these uh, dashboards and reports, but th it requires the executives and the users to actually log in and go and find the specific report that they're looking for or build an ad hoc one, which most of them aren't going to do. You know, you don't have time for that, but if you can just get an email you know, every Monday morning that gives you like the, the highlights and the things that are important for your business org, you know, that, that's something that you can easily ingest, you can get it and you can make decisions off of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can take this a step further, which is we want people to trip on the data. So yeah. an email digest might work really well for people who live in, on their, in their inbox. Now, of course, a lot of companies are in Slack or Microsoft Teams. So how do you get things into there? You know, little previews, little snapshots, you might still have dashboards for people who want it, who have a bookmark on their phone or in the laptop, a way for people to export the data offline into a CSV or Excel so you can play with it. I know executives who want to get their the data printed for them. It may <laughs> sound really old school, but yeah. this is the way they consume data. So again, if you have a way to print a two-page report and have it in someone's desk every, you know, every Monday morning, they'll go through it. So whatever, whatever sort it takes. Uh, for some people, it's actually a, a you know a meeting. If you have a, a weekly meeting where where the latest numbers are shared, and you can you're basically uh, ingesting the insights uh, in an audio format, right? If you think about it, and so there's just all these different ways. But you want to find the the ways that work for your culture and different people, and make it easy for people to to understand the data and work with it. Uh, not assume that hey, we have this dashboard built out. Either you come here and you work with it, or you won't get any data. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's super relevant. Is it's you know how big of important is the presentation of that information rather than just having the information? You know, I used to think that it wasn't. I used to think, hey, just just do it, just give a number and so on. I've come to realize that uh, it's actually quite critical, um, and I think that was a bias on my part. For example, I could look at a table, and I could pick up insights from a table just based mm -hmm. on the rows and columns. But I also, you know, I do this for a living, and I realized that some people cannot do that. A table to them is, is foreign, just as one clear example. So I do think that presentation matters. And whether you have trend lines or, or pie charts or bar charts or just different ways of presenting it, uh, it's something that, that can be really helpful to communicate it. But also, 
going beyond just the visuals and knowing that for some people, even if you give them a pie chart, it's not communicate in the same way as if you have someone explain the, the pie chart. Um, so you want to have the different modes of explaining what's going on in the data. Maybe even think about stories, right? For some people, you're telling them numbers. You say, hey, you know, 30% of customers came from Wisconsin and 20% came from New York, but it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate for them. But if you have a story around how this specific customer came from Wisconsin and this is what they do day to day, this is how they found the product, that tends to stick. So, so you start to think about, again, the different ways of communicating those insights uh, and not just have one single format, a table that now everyone has to <laughs> adapt to. Yeah, yeah. I, I know I, um, a few years ago, I, I decided on my, I was managing a web and mobile development team and I decided to um, create quarterly reports, you know, just on a web page that were out there. And the first couple of quarterly reports were just like basic, boring stats of like things that our team accomplished, just accomplishments. And um, I was getting no interaction, no engagement or anything like that. So then I started putting in like um, some personal pieces in there. Like um, at the end of one quarter, we had, um, uh, I, I kept and counted all the K-cups, coffee K-cups that our team used. And I put that on there and it was kind of like, oh, wow, your team drinks a lot of coffee. You know, so now I started getting a little bit of engagement. So then I would have like the stats of how many lines of code or how many bug fixes we did or how many customers um bid on a certain um, promotion or something like that, and then translated that to dollars saved or, or, or whatever, um, or, or use some, some random analytics to talk about how, how we put in a new feature that made paying your bill, uh, you know, 15 seconds quicker. And we multiply that times the customers and said, Hey, we saved our customers, you know, 30,000 hours worth of bill payment this you know <laughs> time, this, this quarter or something like that. And we're able to kind of show stats like that. And I think when you, when you, present it in a way that's interesting and a little bit different, maybe a little bit personal, like you're talking about with the story of the, the, where the customers are from. Um, it makes people be more engaged and to see the other data that they're not going to look at. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's an example from, I think a charity campaigns that they, they realized this, that they can, they can share stats of uh, maybe the level of poverty in somewhere like Africa, but it's not as powerful as picking one single story and explain the story of one single child and, and what that story of the child goes through. So I think that there's a human element here and, and that gets back to our larger point of, you wanna turn something that can be quite cold, data, numbers, information, into something that's more personal. And it takes effort, granted. What, what I'm describing takes effort. It's much easier really to just build a data warehouse and build a dashboard because yeah. technology now makes, us, makes it quite straightforward. It's much harder to have someone do what you're doing, what you're describing, right? finding those quirky insights, different ways of visualizing it and talking about it more personal. But I do think the best companies are doing this well, whether it's company-wide or within their individual teams, like the example you, you described. Yeah, I, I know I've seen um, where like our, our, our church, uh, I go to a, one of those large churches and they'll, they'll do like a spotlight a story in their annual report about one person who had this life change or this experience going through that. And then at the end, they'll, they'll say, and we've had, you know, 15,000 others, you know, this year go through that a similar change, you know, and a similar impact. So you read this detailed story about this one person, then you realize, oh, I can multiply that times 15,000 and get the, what's the impact that's really being made. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm now, I think confident or really sold on the idea that I think 
statistics is not really a topic that comes naturally to most people. It's not yeah. something they look fun. You know, they don't look back to college and think, oh yeah, you know, that's statistics one one. Definitely one of my <laughs> my favorite courses. And <laughs> one you know, my least I, favorite. <laughs> I look, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I looked at the. I remember the 2016 election, and I think the odds were something like 2080 or something in terms of Clinton and Trump. Yeah. And people were like, man, this is crazy. How, how could Trump ever win? Like, but they realized, hey, 20% is actually a pretty high uh, percentage for, for probabilities. When you kind of think about it, it's not this obscure thing that will never happen, you know, like a, like a comet hitting the earth. And, and I think the same with, with COVID, it just when you throw out probabilities of like, you know, if you get this, this is the probability that you get sick and so on. It doesn't. It doesn't resonate. Is I, I don't think it's really how we think as humans. And companies, I think, have defaulted to it based on maybe management history. And this is how, you know companies get managed by numbers. So we're just gonna throw numbers and percentages at people so they understand what's going on. But it, it doesn't always work as well. I'm sure there's executives out there, you know, maybe CFOs or who are naturally inclined to this. And they, you know, I met CFOs who are amazing. You know, the look at a, at a P&L report. And a cash flow report, and they understand everything that's going on in the company just from you know a, a handful of, of lines of tables, effectively. But not everyone thinks like this. So you want to be able to support the different kinds of ways that people want to ingest data. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think emotion drives so much of our society. Like, uh, I mean, just just right now, I was thinking as you were talking about that, I was thinking about like what statistics do I know about that I don't I, th- that I know the actual data, but it doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't have emotion. I, I started thinking about like animals and uh and, and deaths and stuff because my kid was i have, I have uh, three kids and one of them was telling me all these weird stats about how <laughs> deers are are more people die from a deer in the united states than from shark attacks and i'm like yeah but i'm not at all scared of deers you know deers don't frighten me in the least but sharks terrify me and he's like yeah but you're you're you know i think he's like two thousand times more likely to die from a deer than a shark and i was like what and sure enough i looked it up and it, it, he was right and it, it's just one of those things that blows your mind that you don't really think about the stories behind, you know, the, the emotions that are tied to a shark versus the emotions that are tied to a deer, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, I wrote, I wrote about this recently um, with the airplane crashes, like the, the max 737 uh, that crash uh, outside the U S and you realize that of course, flying in an airplane is extremely safe. It's perhaps one of the safest things we do. Um, but there's perhaps an element of control that we like to prefer where, we might choose driving or we might think that driving is safer when it's not. And we of course do more driving than we do flying, even if you're uh, like a, 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 someone who travels a lot, but, but kind of driving feels a little bit more in our control. Like we are driving the car, we are making choices. Um, we, we, we sort of perceive it as perhaps less risk because of that versus flying. Of course we have no control. We're in the plane and whatever happens, happens to someone else. Yeah, so exactly. the emotion, the control, it all affects how we view the numbers. And this is, I think, the one of the very first ideas we talked about that numbers aren't just numbers. They're not just statistics. We we all mm-hmm. interpret them and put up the biases of how we think about the world and how we how we want to think about the world. Um, so we need to uh, accept that. It's not, I don't think it's neither good or bad. We just need to accept that. And in companies, we need to uh, remember that as, as we work with data. So uh, real quick, what, what your, your subtitle of your book is why companies fail to actually use their data. So what is the number one reason why companies fail to actually use the data that they collect or have? I think it comes down to not solving people issues. Mm, it's not yeah. technology. I think you can find the technology. Uh, the process 
might be one, but it's also something you can solve. That is, what is the process for converting data into insights into dashboards? But the people issues, which is what we've been discussing, are yeah, really tricky. <laughs> yeah, the, whole, the yeah. people issues. Um, yeah. And there's there's a bunch that we never, you know, we we never got to. Things like you know, people not trusting the numbers they see in front of them. Mm-hmm. People being overwhelmed by data, this sort of ironic outcome from the world we live in now where we have too much data at yeah. us, so we have no idea how to sort through it. So how do we so filter that all... out? How, how do we filter out that too much data so that we can trust it more? So I, I think it, it, it comes down to uh, effectively limiting the, uh, the input. So that, that may mean a few things. It may mean that you track fewer KPIs. You know, uh, I, I've been with teams where they, they're tracking you know, 20, 20 different KPIs not really making progress on any of them. So we narrow down to say, hey, what are the two, three or more important KPIs? And let's work on those. You know, startups do this really well with the um, this concept of the North Star metric that you have one single metric that you're going to improve. It's a little too simplistic once you get to larger companies, but a team could do this realistically. <clears throat> they might have a single metric that they focus on every week, uh, every month, every quarter. You might also have, uh, for some companies, you might also add gatekeepers. Um, you know, we talk about reducing friction in some cases. In other cases, we actually may want to add friction to the data and have someone who just simply challenges uh, us or other people on why we want the data. So we may say, uh, this is common for companies where there's a request process for reports. So, you know, an executive goes and says, you know what, I, I need this report. Here's the columns and rows with questions I want to answer. And then the report gets made, no questions asked. But then you have this backlog because there's too many requests, too many reports. It takes too much time. So having a gatekeeper who just has a conversation with someone and just tries to talk about, okay, if you have this data in this format that you're thinking about, what would you do with it, right? And if you don't have good answers to those kind of questions, you may be dealing with a bit of vanity metrics. There's, there's, um, you know, there's a time for exploratory type data. But if you're being overwhelmed by too much data, that's not the time for it. Uh, that's the time for really filtering and condensing and focusing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically, you could have too much data, and you know you're going to be kind of blinded by all the all the different metrics and miss out on the important key pieces that that are that are there. Yes, you know. Again, if we look at COVID nineteen, because it's the most maybe top of mind data example that we all experience right now day to day, you realize that for a lot of uh, public health authorities, they're really reported only a handful of numbers consistently. Um, you know, usually cases, deaths, and now maybe a vaccination rate. So it's maybe two or three KPIs that they, t- they, they highlight. They may talk about other things. Their dashboards might have 20, 30, 40 out of those. But I think on a, on a sort of day to day for most people, they, those are the numbers they know. How many people had cases? What was the death? Mm-hmm. And how many people are vaccinated as a percentage? So, so we, this is, I think, the way teams and companies <clears throat> really think. You might have all this data and KPIs, but you're really working with only a handful of numbers at any given time, any given month or quarter. So you want to find those, be really clear on those, and be able to put aside the other ones until they're needed, if they're ever needed. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. I think that will... Um help you make better decisions because you're not going to be overwhelmed with all the extra stuff and, you know, right away, but then maybe you can have like an, an AI program or something later on that's looking through those pieces that you, you kind of stashed away and didn't use because they weren't important right now to see if there's anything important in there later on. Yeah. I mean, and look, look at an example from uh, health. 
now a lot of people are tracking their steps with an mm-hmm. Apple Watch or Fitbit and so on, right? And, and there's a 10,000 steps per day. And it's a simple metric. And it and I think the, the reason why it's it's done well for, for people is that it's a simple way of tracking health. You know if you hit the steps or not. Mm-hmm. If you haven't, you know what to do. And you're not really overwhelmed. You know, uh, you're not really thinking, well, this is my blood level. This is my, you know, my weight. This is my fat percentage. You're, you're dealing with one metric on a day-to-day basis. And I think, I imagine for some people, once you do this consistently, then you might add a second metric, maybe your mm-hmm. weight and maybe you add a third metric. So you, you start to maybe add on top of it, but the one single metric, the steps per day in a way that's easy to track, easy to analyze, easy to think about, gets you moving and it gets you uh, being healthier without being overwhelmed by the entire, you know, world of nutrition metrics that you could be tracking. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I started out tracking my 10,000 steps, you know, a couple of years ago. And now, you know, I've got the Apple Watch. Now I'm tracking, you know, how many hours I'm standing up versus sitting down, how many exercise minutes, how many uh, exercise calories are burned and, and all that good stuff. Uh, and, it, you know, it was one of those things that slowly built over time. But having that simple thing to do to say, am I getting 10,000 steps or not? And if so, then I'm, I'm, you know, I feel good about myself. If I don't, then before I go to bed, I'm gonna go for a quick walk. You know, I'm gonna do something to to, to make sure I hit that metric and make myself, you know, uh, get that health. Uh, you know, check that checkbox. I guess you would say. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and then you know, companies may not be able to do one single metric. Let's let's, let's be honest here. Yeah. Uh, they might have multiple things that you have to look at profit and cost and a few other mm-hmm. things. But there is, uh, I do think it's a it's a it's a finite number. It's a small number of things that you're looking at, even at a company high level to understand how the business is performing. Mm-hmm. This is not a, a minority report you know, style room where you have a hundred metrics around you and you're engaging all of them at the same time. Yep, exactly. Um, well, hey man, this has been great. I enjoyed uh, talking about this and realizing that, hey, maybe I'm tracking too many things. I need to focus uh, focus in a little bit narrower on uh, some of the numbers and things that I that I do look at on a um, you know daily, weekly, or, or even quarterly basis. Um, how can people find out more about you, the things that you're doing and uh, pick up a copy of your book? Well, the book is available everywhere where books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters, if you're in Canada, BAM. I saw it at Google Play. So there's a Kindle and there's a physical version. To learn more about me, you can go to my website. Uh, that is rubenugarte.com, um, my first and last name. And you'll find links to the book, uh, blog posts, resources, and a bunch of other uh, educational content that dives deeper into many of the, of the ideas that we talked about today. Yeah, and I'll link all that up in the show notes as well as your uh, your YouTube, your website, and all that good stuff. And in and, and the book, it'll be where uh, books from our guests are found at geekleader.com. Uh, Ruben, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, John. If you enjoyed that episode, please uh, leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I'd greatly appreciate that. And also, don't forget to check out merch. We have some T-shirts that uh, I've designed that are on geekleader.com. Um, you can click on the merchandise uh, section there and check that out. And also don't forget about the books from our guests. So if you like this guest and other guests that have written books, please um, go ahead and check that out at a geekleader.com. I would greatly appreciate it, and I'm sure they would too.